Are you in the Guard or Reserves now? Guard. How does it work if you decide to resign your commission? Well, because I got like 14 years in now, I think I can pretty much resign my commission at any time. Just yeah. be like, nah, I'm done. <laughs> Quick, guys, here's my two yeah. weeks notice. See you later. Because they didn't pay for my schooling, so I was already under contract. But normally when you when you commission, it's four years before you can quit. How much notice do you have to put in? I don't know. It'd be cool if you just one day at PT, you're fed up. You're like, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> throw, your, throw your bars out. Yeah, and just walk see away. you later. I'm out of here. It's like old-timey radio standing up here. On Longest War, the podcast of BBC's post-9-11 veteran storytelling project, we feature the stories and experiences of Pittsburgh's post-9-11 veterans. I'm Nick Grimes, Army veteran of Afghanistan and host of the podcast. On this episode of Longest War, Army veteran Ryan All. Ryan, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, I'm happy to be here. My first podcast. It's pretty cool stuff. High tech, super high tech. I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, so, Ryan, you are a Pennsylvania Army National Guard veteran. Correct. Infantry. Mm-hmm. When did you join? How old were you? I was 18 years old. Um, I joined in 2002. It was February 11th, uh, right after, you know, a few months after 9-11. And uh, I signed up the papers and I finished high school and went to basic training, you know, that summer. Fort Benning? For basic training? The Fort Benning School for Boys. Sure did. For yep. wayward boys. For wayward boys. And uh, that's where they do all the infantry training. So that's where I went. So why why infantry? Why? You know, uh, well, growing up, I'd always wanted to be a pilot. My dad was an Air Force guy, um, but I didn't have... Uh, I had uh, glasses, right? So you can't be a pilot um, and, have, uh, and have bad vision. So I was like, well, what's my second most you know, thing that I like. And, uh, you know, I'd always been a fan of like Rambo. So I was like, <laughs> let, you know, and I talked to a recruiter and I was like, you know, play in the, play in the woods and shoot guns. Like that sounds like a great time. So, um, yeah, I joined the infantry and for, for years, my dad, who was an air force veteran thought I was drafted in the infantry. He didn't believe <laughs> me that like I had, vol- <laughs> that I had volunteered for it. So he, he, uh, it was actually between my first and second deployment. It, it like dawned on him that I had volunteered for the infantry and he just looked at me and was like, I don't, I don't even feel bad for you anymore. <laughs> What'd your mom think? So my mom was also a veteran for a short amount of time. She ended up being part of the, the rift, the reduction in force, like in the mid eighties. Um, and you know, she, she was fine with it. I mean, she was excited. She wasn't, you know, wasn't worried or anything. What branch was she? She was army. She was army. Yeah. Your but for a very short time, uh, she ended up, um, meeting my dad and then getting pregnant and they were like, okay, well we, you can just get out. That's a quick ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So see you later. Sure. Yeah. So you go to basic, what was that, 2002? Yep, 2002. February? Uh, so I went in June. So I finished high school and, oh, uh, perfect. in June. And then, Fort Benning, Georgia in June. In June, yeah. So it was a lovely time of year. What was that experience like for you? You know, uh, it was awesome. Uh, I mean, I mean, I look back on it like the distance in time has given me a lot of time to reflect. I mean, at the time, you know, it was, it was hard. It wasn't, it wasn't easy, that's for sure. But I, I felt like I had some advantages, right? My, my father had been a... Uh, uh, a drill instructor in the Air Force. So he was able to like kind of prep me. He was like, no matter what happens, no matter what you do, you're going to end up doing push-ups. So just roll right. with the punches <laughs> and like, and just, uh, just learn what you can. And, you know, they're just trying to get you in shape. They're going to break you down. They're going to build you back up. And, and all those things happened. And uh, it was a really good experience. I had a one drill sergeant who, uh, well, I had two drill sergeants who were very uh, impactful on me. I had a drill sergeant Mills and a drill sergeant Oriana, who was a Puerto Rican national who had uh, joined the army. If you want, I can share a quick story about yeah, drill sergeant Oriana. 
So he was a guy who um, loved to pick on me. Like, I don't know why, but I was like, so my last name's all, I was first in line for everything. Everybody knew my name like day one, exactly who I was. And uh, we were doing, we were on the range and we got a new sight. It was a little close combat optic. It was a little dot. And prior to shooting, they wanted you to change the sight around so that the dot would appear on the, in the middle of the sight. So Drosar Noriana is coming down, check, going foxhole to foxhole, checking everyone's rifle. He's picking it up, looking down the sight, checking it. And I'm the very last one. And he, he, gets, he gets to me and he kneels down in my foxhole and he picks up my rifle and he looks down the sight and, and he says, finally, somebody got it right. And he holds out his hand to me like he wants to shake my hand. And I'm like, and this guy has been messing with me for weeks. And so I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> so I reach up my hand, like I'm going to shake his hand and he grabs my hand and he slams me against the side of the fox and he squeezes my hand. And he says, does that hurt private all? And I said, dumbly, I don't know why. I said, not really, drill sergeant. <laughs> so he puts it on the gravel and he steps on it. <laughs> he steps on my head and he says, does that hurt private all? I said, yes, Joe Sard. He's like, now get to shoot. And he just walks away. Right. So like that, those were the kind of things he would, he would do just to, just to mess with me. So I went to basic in 04. So these are all infantry guys that are drill sergeants for the most part. Right. And to me in 04, like it seemed they were almost resentful of being on the trail, so to speak, you know, being drill sergeants right. because they all, they all wanted to be deployed. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan had, were just kicking off at the time. Did you ever get any kind of, uh, you know, inkling of that feeling from, from your drill instructors? No. Um, I mean, when I was in basic training, uh, the invasion hadn't started yet. So um, there was just the, I think, the regular run-of-the-mill resentment of being a drill sergeant <laughs> rather than like the resentment of being, uh, being, not being deployed. You know, they, I think it just, you know, it just wears on them. It's hard. Like when you're training, they have to be out there with you and it's, you know, seven days a week and um, they only get so many days off and it's, it's long hours. So it wears on them. Well, that's an interesting point that the, the invasion hadn't started yet. So I never thought of that because, like I said, when I went in 04, right. it was well underway. Yeah. What was, so we were in Afghanistan already in 2002. Right. Was that your assumption? Is like, well, if I deploy Afghanistan, was there any thought in your mind or any time did it cross your, your mind that Iraq is maybe a destination for me? Um, a little bit. I mean, I was, I followed the news pretty closely. After I got done with, with basic training, it really started to become a little bit more like this might happen. It didn't take long. When I was in basic training, not really. But shortly thereafter, once I once I got done, um, it became a little bit more of a possible reality for sure. How did they frame your training at the time? Like, were they talking about Afghanistan? Were they focused training in that kind of direction, like this counterinsurgency stuff? No, that was what was so, like, surprising. Like, when I look back and I think about it, and all the training I received since then that has been so counterinsurgency heavy, it was still very, like, if you remember the old FM-8 or 7-8, right, which is the old, like, infantry manual for, like, 30 years or whatever. It was very, like, force-on-force force specific. So, like, it was this manual. We were being trained to, like, fight an, a, a peer enemy, like the Russians or something. Right, like uniformed so, armies. Exactly. So we were still very much focused on on those sorts of uh on, on those sorts of skills so very much like movement in a forest and how to take out a bunker you know stuff like that wow. you know? yeah so when you got to your unit and you guys started training it was like grab everything that you learned at basic and start over yeah i mean when we started uh getting ready to deploy it was a lot of a lot of new stuff to learn yeah we learned a lot of that a lot of that stuff you deployed twice to iraq right correct uh tell me about your first tour a little bit uh yeah the my first tour was um to Tikrit, um hometown of of saddam hussein uh it was pretty crazy i just remember when we got there it was really cold 
uh, surprisingly cold. And then uh, as soon as things started heating up, it got really crazy, like really quick. And uh, we had a significant action of some sort of, you know, a, a shooting or a car bomb or an IED or something go off, you know, in our area, um, our area of operations, you know, it was almost daily. I mean, something significant was happening. It was it was pretty crazy back then. So you were light infantry, like foot soldier support for a mechanized unit? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody was pretty much acting as light infantry at that time because it was very rare that they would bring out the Bradleys, um, the Bradley fighting vehicles, the large, you know, tank type vehicle. Um, we operated mostly out of Humvees uh, or dismounted, meaning we would walk to our objective. So we did a lot of things uh, uh, called OPs, you know, observation posts. Um, we would go out and, and look at at sites for an extended period of time to make sure that people weren't setting up IEDs or something like that. And we would do uh, raids or, or searches where we would search people's houses looking for contraband and stuff like that. So we would do a lot of that kind of stuff. Did you get stuck doing a lot of like vehicle checkpoints? We did, yeah. Oh, That's man. That's got to be the worst thing to ever do. That's just like search a cars ticking time for bomb. bombs. <laughs> 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 and you're the guy that has to stop and ask them if they have a bomb. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was always a tough one. Uh, the TCPs, the traffic control points, when we would set up and do those, that was always just like, is today my day? Right. You know? Because that was the scariest part. They were, you know, man- moving these, these uh, IEDs around from different cities to different cities, and then... You can't set them up for very long. Otherwise, you could, right. you could drive a car bomb from Mosul, you know, if you sit up there for too long. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do a vehicle control point today. The point of a suicide bomber <laughs> is to get close enough to you to blow you up. Right. And we want you to go stand places and not only allow them to get close to you, but once they do, stop them so they can't <laughs> go any further. Yeah. Just go ahead and just go ahead and walk up to that vehicle. Search it real quick. Yeah, oh, feel- okay. You almost feel like like this is a terrible idea. <laughs> right. We should not be doing it this way. Yeah. So that's fun. So then, so that was 02, or no, what year did you go? It was 0405. 405. You came yeah. back? Came back, and I uh, was uh, still in the National Guard, and we transitioned to a striker brigade. You know, strikers the was the new Army vehicle at the time, an eight-wheeled vehicle that uh, had a lot of different capabilities, and we were transitioning to, to that. So once we got uh, done with that transition, they deployed us again to Iraq, uh, this time uh, just a little north of Baghdad in a, a place called Taji. If you're familiar with Sadr City, a lot of people heard about that on the news, right. but that was like included in our area. So we were just north of Baghdad. How was it uh, in the Strikers? Because like, I haven't heard terribly great things about Strikers. Oh, really, man? I love them. So these things were were great. I mean, they could go 60, 70 miles an hour on a highway. They, I was really surprised at their resiliency and their off-road capability. I mean, and then you have, we had an infantry carrier variant. So it was just like the back of it was open. It was made to carry troops and you would drive those things around. They could go through just about anything. They put some additional armor on them when we got there. I saw a striker actually got hit with an IED, got blown completely on its side. Um, everybody inside survived. They pulled up another striker, winched this thing back onto its wheels, and it drove away. Oh, wow. So, I mean, impressive. I had no no complaints about the strikers. What kind of weapons do they have on them? It depends. On the variants we had, they had um, either a, a 50 caliber machine gun or a Mark 19 grenade launcher, but they make different kinds. They also make one called a mobile gun system, which looks like a, a tank top on it. So it has a big main kind of artillery gun. They also make a, a mortar variant where the top pops open and a mortar tube comes out. That sounds yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, they were fun. So we had we had a bunch of them. It was pretty cool. Yeah, we had MRAPs. I don't know. How big were the Strikers? Were they pretty wide? They were pretty wide, but they weren't nearly as tall as an MRAP. We actually 
we went and escorted a unit that came in. They had MRAPs. They were from the first cab, and we escorted them, uh, escorted them in, went and picked them up, brought them and all their gear in. And the MRAPs were the new thing. They were even newer than the striker at the time. So right. we were like, oh, we want an MRAP. We want an MRAP. So we traded them, one of our strikers, for one of their MRAPs. And uh, we were going to use the MRAP as our uh, emergency casualty evacuation vehicle. It was going to be the platoon sergeant's vehicle. And uh, we had it for probably about a week. We hated it. We, <laughs> we demanded our striker back for it. Because we, we were going in certain places that were off-road that um, these MRAPs just couldn't go. And they were so tall because, uh, you know, the area we were working in was so urban. There were always all these wires that were getting right. caught on this thing because it was so tall. So we just got rid of it. Ditched yeah. it, huh? Yeah. And I was surprised how small they are inside for how big they look. Oh, yeah. They're not built for comfort. No. That's for sure. Not <laughs> at all. Yeah. I mean, they look huge. And then you get inside and it's... It's tiny. It's all armor. That, yeah, it's all armor. <laughs> it's all armor yeah. and like six inches for your legs. Exactly. It, yes. They suck. That's uh, crazy. They're certainly resistant to mines. They are certainly not ambush proof. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. uh, they, can, they can take quite a licking. But as we learned early in our first uh, or second tour, uh, there's another unit. This guy's up on a hill, shot an RPG down onto the roof. Uh, apparently not protected whatsoever on the top. And it just cut straight through it and blew up on the inside. Wow. So that was always a concern going forward. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So we we nixed that. Um, we also, we got really lucky our second deployment. My platoon was detached again and attached to a different unit. We got uh, trained up to be a um, time-sensitive targeting platoon where we would work with some special uh, operations forces to do uh, raids for to capture high-value targets, which was... It was an awesome job. I loved it. It was it was really cool. It was a lot of fun. These are those night raids you hear about on the news. We would do, yeah, we would do that a lot. So um, there was obviously a lot of HVTs running around and, and not very many uh, special operations troops, or at least not enough to go around. So we would um, work with them or we would we would go get some of the ones that were maybe like a little bit less important. Mid-level. <laughs> yeah, mid-level guys. Uh, What'd you do with them once you got them? Uh, so so walk me through that. You kick in a door. Well, here's the thing, right? The whole point was when we got trained up to do this, they were like, we want you to be sneaky little surreptitious little <laughs> little guys, right? So we would uh, walk into most of our most of our objectives. Um, we would we would walk in. The, the striker vehicles would be would be back waiting. Um, and the whole point was to sneak in, right? So we would get up to their to their walls or to their building, and we would try to sneak in. And there were a couple guys that we we woke up in their bed and we're like, hey, you're under arrest. You're, <laughs> you know, you're coming with us. Uh, uh, there was, you know, but there's a few times when you got to do the the door kicking thing. But, you know, they told, because that's what we had been trained. That's what we were amped up to do, right? Go in there, kick in the doors. And they're like, no, 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 we don't want you to do that. We want you to, we want you to sneak in there, right? We want you Be to- Be nicer yeah, about it. <laughs> we want you to get these dudes because a lot of the times what happened was uh, you kick in the front door and these bad guys are running out the back door. Right. You know? You got to end up shooting them. Exactly. And so, then- they don't have them for questioning. Exactly. So it was weird, though. We were also there for the transition of authority. So we could only hold on to these guys for about 24 hours before we had to turn them over to Iraqi authorities. To never be seen again. To whoever, <laughs> whatever happens to them at that point, yes. That's on Iraq. I don't know. I mean, that was their thing, and we were just playing by, trying to play by the rules. So if you wake a guy up in his bed, now I'm imagining probably like midnight, two in the morning, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what kind of response did you usually, was it like, okay, I'm, I'm coming with you. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're usually very surprised. They probably can't see who we are because we're flashing, you know, surefires in their face. And yeah. we're like, Hey buddy, you're coming with us. Um, uh, but you know, normally it wasn't, uh, 
they they were usually pretty compliant. I mean, they didn't really have a choice, right? Yeah, once you get them to that point, uh, and you're and you drop in on them like that, they're, <laughs> in their there's no point fighting. You know, we got you. You're coming with us. Did their families ever come to you guys looking for them? After that point, once we got control of the uh, of the target the target person, we would do what was called a tactical site exploitation. So we would, you know, at this point we had the dude. We would go, you know, lights on. We got once the compound is secured, okay, like no point, you know, now we can explore what's going on and search for further evidence. So at that point, you know, we were then questioning or talking to the uh, family members. We were taking down their information. We were searching the house for anything else that could be of use to us. So it wasn't just a snatch and grab. We would do this tactical site exploitation where we would search for evidence and all kinds of things. Was the guy still there with you at that point? Typically. I mean, he was usually in restraints or probably in custody, you know, in the back of one of our vehicles or something. Oh, so the strikers already like made their way up by that yeah. point? Yeah. Okay. So there was this whole well, whole thing that happens. But once we once we go once we go live, you know, we make the radio call and the strikers come in and kind of secure the the perimeter. Cord on and off. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cord on Very and cool. off. Very mm-hmm. cool. So what were you doing? What was your civilian job between those two tours? So I was going to school and I was working for the federal government uh, for a little while. What were you going to school for? My BA in history. From? Slippery Rock University. Slippery Rock. Yeah, man. Go Rock. Yeah? Yeah. Good. GI Bill. GI Bill. Post 9-11 GI Bill? Post 9-11. The um, BH is nice, isn't it? It's real nice. I mean, there was a while there. When I was getting my master's degree, I was like, I don't even know if I want to get a job. I'm making more money going to school than I'm doing, right. <laughs> doing anything else. It's you certainly know? a great benefit. It's yeah. helpful. I don't know how guys went to school without that allotment before. Right. Yeah, especially if you're going full-time and you can only work part-time. Yeah. It seems super stressful. Yeah. When did you decide to go over to the officer side? Oh, okay. So, yeah, um, it was after my second tour, and uh, I decided to go back to school for, for graduate school to get my master's in education. You know, it was a two-year master's degree to commission from ROTC. It takes, you know, two years of, of contracting. And I decided that, um, uh, you know, I'd reached the rank of a staff sergeant, um, E6. Uh, and to get the next promotion, especially in the National Guard, to E7, uh, sergeant first class, um, it gets really tough. It gets really tough. So I, I decided, I, I thought that the best way to move my career path forward would be to commission and become an officer. Um, yeah, because in the Guard, you can, as an E6, you can have an E6 with 16 years under his belt pretty easily, right? Oh, yeah. Like I mean, you can have E4s with 16 years under right. the belt in the Guard. I mean, it, there's nowhere else you can go other than the slots that are available in the state. So it becomes tough um, to advance once you once you reach a certain point. You Sometimes, like, if you're eligible to be promoted E7 mm-hmm. and there's not a slot, you have to go find another unit somewhere where there is a slot. Uh, well, they will present you with slots statewide for that spot, but the problem is, is like those don't come available very often either, right? Because somebody either has to retire or get out or whatever, get fired for that, because there's only so many. And once someone gets in them, they stay there for a while until the person above them moves on. Right. So it it can it can take a while, take a can take a long time. You did ROTC. I did ROTC at Slip Rock University, so I went back there to get my master's degree. Uh, I did the ROTC training, and then I uh, went to basic officer course at Fort Lee, Virginia. So now I'm a ordinance or logistics officer. How did that work? Did you have like a wish list, right, of what branches you would like to go into? Yeah, yeah. Um, and by branch, we mean we mean fields within field, the army. Exactly the job that I was going to do. So I had originally had wanted to stay infantry, um, but just like with the National Guard, um, there's only so many spots that could be had uh, as an infantry officer, and they were at about 150% strength. So I looked at a few other things, and they said, nope, those are all over strength too. And so I just asked the the recruiter, I was like, well, what's under strength? And he said, ordinance, logistics. And I was like, he was like, you could be, you know, a captain in a few years. I was like, 
I'll do that. That sounds great. You know, so uh, plus um, the training was at Fort Lee, Virginia, um, which is a great spot. It's just south of Richmond. It's really close to Virginia Beach. It was a nice spot. It wasn't too far from home. I was in the process of getting married and sounded like a, you know, great opportunity, way to expand my horizons and uh, was very applicable uh, in the civilian side with logistics. How long was that school? It was four months. Four months. Yeah. But it's like, it's, it's not like basic, right? Like you're oh, it's a gentleman's like a, course. like an adult. Yes. It's, it takes place in the Army Logistics University. That was a, that was a good time. Plus it's like, it was like being back in college again. Cause all these other, I'm almost 30 years old and I'm hanging out with all these kids who are like 21, 22. You're the old man and now. And I'm, I'm like live, pretty much living the single life <laughs> because even though I'm getting married, you know, my wife's all the way back in Pittsburgh. And so I'm just partying it up, just like living in a dorm room, hanging out with all these young kids. It's a good time. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it was fun. When was this? When did you get your commission? What year? Oh, it was 2013. 2000, yeah, 2013. What are you now? Are you lieutenant? First, all? first lieutenant all, yeah. When are you going to be up for captain, you think? I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Like, so learning how the promotion system works uh, for officers is uh, a little bit strange. It's a little bit stranger in the guard. It's kind of like they, they pass your name back into a secret room and all these old guys talk about where they're going to put you and how they're going to promote you. And so, uh, so who knows? It's like being in the Duquesne club, as much of old white dudes in the room. (laughs) Exactly. So they're talking about what they need and where, where I should go. And so I'm, I'm getting scheduled to do captain's career course. So, um, should be, shouldn't be too much longer, but we'll see. So if you make captain, you could theoretically become a company commander, right? Yes. Now, is that a full-time position in the guard? No. It's nope. still part-time. still part-time, yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how does that work? Like, <laughs> that seems like that needs to be a full-time job to be a, a CO. Exactly. That is very interesting. I mean, the National Guard units have um, full-time staff for each unit, and those are typically a couple of non-commissioned officers, so sergeants, doing the day-to-day work of the— Is that like their supply guys? And supply guy, a readiness clerks. guy, a, and a training guy. Okay. Pretty much, pretty much per unit. There are a few full-time officers that work, but those are normally like— uh, a few captains doing different stuff, and a few lieutenant colonels doing some different stuff, keeping the keeping the ball rolling. So and they're it, usually at battalion level, usually at battalion level, or, or some sort of staff position. So to be a company commander, I mean, even in the position I'm in right now as a as a platoon leader and as and uh, as an executive officer, it's a lot more than just one weekend a month. I mean, you have to do a lot of this stuff on your own time. You you can't just expect like to show up for a weekend and be able to execute on all this training that you've been planning. Right. So it takes a lot of work outside of you know, when you're in uniform. How often do you guys do like sensitive item inventories? Every month. Every month. Every month. Is that during your two days? It's or? during the two days. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So that takes up a good amount of time, right? It sure does. Yeah. And, and uh, it rotates between the couple of platoon leaders. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's always a good time. Reading off the serial numbers of Every M4s, piece of equipment. Every piece of equipment. <laughs> that the commander through. signed for. You get pretty good at it after a while. Uh, you, you find out where the things are and you, you find some systems that work. So, you know, you can normally get it done pretty quickly. We only do it, we only do like a certain percentage of it each month. I think the regulation is that every quarter, so every three months, all of it has to be done. So you're basically doing a third every month. Like downrange, we were doing every piece of equipment every month. Oh, and when you have guys scattered at five fobs yeah man that's it's nuts. a nightmare man it's like as soon as you're done the next one has to start <laughs> yeah i can't imagine what that was like man so yeah i've never been to afghanistan so i don't i don't have like too much of a frame of reference oh it's fun but what it's you would have loved it <laughs> <laughs> here it's mountainous here it's nice this time of year it's like iraq but it snows <laughs> oh that's good that's good yeah i mean man that heat just like sticks with you i gotta tell you man so going on r&r and i get off the plane I don't know, like five in the morning in Kuwait. Yeah. 
and it's like 110 degrees yeah. and it's the wind is blowing and it's like I try to explain it's like a blow dryer yeah. just blowing on you nonstop like the other day Steph uh, my wife she asked you know like how hot is it like how miserable like that kind of stuff and yeah. the other day here it was like 93 degrees and I was like go sit in your car <laughs> close the door and sit in there for about five minutes yeah that's about what it's like every single day yeah it's just oppressive and you know the arm we've got a you can't roll your sleeves Right. Can't do any nonsense, anything that would make you slightly comfortable. No, no, you got to look hard. Gotta yeah, look hardcore. it's just a miserable... Because if you don't look hardcore, then the then the terrorists will attack you. Then they win. Because that <laughs> yes, then they win. Like how how is that my my sleeves being rolled up are gonna is right. gonna lose this mission for you? The sergeant major will tell you if you put your hands in your pockets, ISIS has won. Ice. If you don't have your eye pro on, ISIS has won. <laughs> I'm pretty sure sergeant majors are diverting like drones to look for uniform deficiencies like around the uh, around the area like. They're just flying them around with their cameras like, oh, that guy's got his hands in his pockets. Man, so like our, bless his heart, Lieutenant Conaway, he was our platoon leader on our <laughs> last tour. And we were out, I don't even remember what we were doing. There was like a recovery. Like we had to escort a wrecker out there and they were like flipping these trucks over. They were blocking the road. Yeah. And Lieutenant Conaway took all these pictures and stuff and he came back and he shows the Sergeant Major the pictures and Sergeant Major like just flips shit. And he's like, Where's that soldier's eye bro? Why is that soldier's <laughs> weapon not slung properly? Like, where's his helmet at? It's just like, oh my God. Like, sir. <laughs> yeah. Don't ever try to show this our major pictures of anything ever again. <laughs> right. Or you know what? Even better, quit taking pictures of stuff. Yeah. I gotta yeah. love that because like Facebook was big. Right. Uh, MySpace at the time. Oh, good old MySpace. And I feel like part of a SAR major job is to spend a good 20 hours a week just looking at soldiers' Facebook to find uniform <laughs> violations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would agree. Oh, I gotta yeah. love them though, man. So what are you doing now? What are you doing full? What's your full-time job? Yeah. So now I, uh, I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. I work for the Vet Center program, uh, which is a national program of, uh, of community-based outpatient counseling clinics. Um, we do uh, individual and group counseling, marital and family counseling. We do bereavement counseling for people who have lost a service member. And we also do counseling for victims of military sexual trauma. Um, all in a community-based, outside-the-hospital clinic. Over 72% of Vet Center employees uh, nationwide are veterans themselves, and we, you know, we pride ourselves on on reducing the barriers to a person seeking treatment. Um, you don't even have to be enrolled in VA healthcare to access a Vet Center. You can walk in and you can say, "I need to speak to somebody," and we'll sit you down. I mean, there are certain things you need to uh, to do to be to be eligible. For, for a vet center, we focus our primary on uh, war zone veterans, but we'll we'll see anybody for a, a humanitarian visit. If you're a, a veteran um, having an issue, we will we will talk to you and we will make sure that you're you're okay. That's for sure. So they have, there's a weird relationship there with the VA. So it's part of the VA, yeah, but it's separate. It's kind of like I don't know if they said this in Iraq, but like local nationals in Afghanistan, when they try to explain something, they would use this. They would be like same same but different. <laughs> right. And that's kind of the gist of it. Like it's yeah. part of the VA, right. but it's detached from the VA. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, it's just got, it's got a, it's got a very good reputation, particularly in the post 9 community of doing really solid work and having really good guys on staff there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, some of our counselors we have in the Pittsburgh Vet Center are some of the best around because they, you know, you're speaking to a veteran who has a, a set of common experiences that you do. I think that really reduces the barrier to sharing and the barrier to healing, to getting you back to um, to where you want to be. Um, and I think that that makes a big difference. And we come at it from a different, you know, a different point of view. You know, we've been through the same experiences you've been through uh, and we want to help you. And it reduce, just reduces the barrier and the, and the bureaucracies that you sometimes have to go through with the VA. And what do you do there specifically? 
I am the uh, veteran outreach program specialist. So specifically, I do some administrative work uh, and I talk to the community. I work with the community um, and talk with veterans about what the Vet Center does and how to connect those veterans with treatment, not only with the Vet Center, but also with different VA programs that they might be eligible for. And how do they do that? How does a veteran say in the Pittsburgh area, how do they go about connecting with a vet center? Oh, uh, well, you can uh, you can look us up online. Uh, you can call us. What's the website? There's vetcenter.va.gov. Uh, and on that website, you'll be able to uh, find the closest vet center location to you. And how easy is it to set appointments, things of that nature? Uh, call in and we will get you in as soon as good for you. So whenever it works with your schedule, we have uh, four counselors on staff at the Pittsburgh Vet Center. Um, and chances are one of them will be able to see you um, that day if necessary. But uh, we will get it, you win whenever is most convenient for you. Very cool. Yeah. So how long have you been there for? Six I months? I just started in January. So I guess about eight months. Eight now. months. So what, what's your long-term goals? Like, are you going to be secretary of the VA all one day? Oh, man. You know, I just uh, I just want to help vets. I just want to help <laughs> so many vets. No, I'm just like, I mean... Counseling helped me a lot through some of the experiences I was dealing with. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, do we have, sure. Do we have time? When I got home, uh, especially for my first tour, my first tour was was pretty rough. I had issues. I didn't quite realize at the time, but I was I was self-medicating with alcohol. I was uncomfortable around crowds. I felt like I was missing something every time I walked out of the house because I was so used to carrying all this body armor and ammunition and weapons. Um, yeah, that's a weird feeling. Yeah. When you, for like the first week, you wake up and you reach under your cot, which you're not laying on right. <laughs> to get the gun that's not there. Exactly. Yeah. So it was it was hard. It was really hard. And I, I, I don't think I took the time to, to properly decompress. And I think that, uh, you know, drinking made it worse. You you have this like, and plus you're young, so you're, you just feel invincible anyway. Like, oh, I'm not hurt. I'm fine. No big deal. How old were you at the time? I turned 21 in Iraq. So I was 21 when I got home. And my birthday on a rooftop. The perfect age to yes, self-medicate. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so you get home, you feel like you've missed all this partying time, you want to catch up with your friends, and you just kind of get deeper and deeper until um, you kind of lose yourself for a little bit. And that's hard. And it wasn't uh, It wasn't until I was getting ready for my second plan that I actually went and sought counseling. Like I had, I was getting by. It was that military mindset of just mission orientation, right? Mission, complete the mission, just one foot in front of the other. That's what I was doing. I was living like that for a long time. Just, you know, just one foot in front of the other. Just keep moving. Don't give up. You know, and this but, is like for, for five years, this, right? Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, there were, there were good times and bad times in there, but it was, it was for about five years that I was really having a, a tough time. And it wasn't really until I started getting ready for my second deployment that I started to feel normal again. And that was when alarm bells went off in my head because I was like, it shouldn't feel normal, you know, to be getting ready to go to war. Right. But that's when I started feeling comfortable again. So after, you know, I, I talked to some people on the deployment. And then when I got back, I went and I, I saw counseling and I just feel like in such a better place. And it, it had such a positive effect on me. I'm very passionate and very proud to be a part of the Vet Center program because I can see that happening in other people that I can connect with those services. That's what I think is so so great about this this line of work. I think the VA, you know, the VA can get a bad rap, but it is there for its veterans. And there are a lot of people that get good help. Uh, and there are some that, you know, run into a lot of barriers with getting that help. But I think it's getting better. I'll, I'll be honest and say I was a little bit concerned before I accepted the position because of the reputation that the VA had. But I've seen a lot of positive change. And I've seen a lot of you know, younger people and new ideas trying to get in there and make the VA better. So I think it's definitely moving in the right direction. Did you go to the VA or a vet center? Uh, both. I was at the VA when somebody told me, like, you need to go talk to this guy, you know, and I didn't really know what it was for. 
and they sat me down and they, because I was there for a, a back issue I had. I was getting a, some primary care and some physical therapy follow up. And the guy was just talking to me. He was like, you need to go sit sit down with this guy. He didn't tell me who it was, but it was it was a it was a psychologist. Uh, it wasn't too long after that, after one session, he's like, we need some follow up sessions. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure you have PTSD. And I said, PTSD? I don't have PTSD. But no, I'm good to go. But uh, yeah, that uh, therapy helped a lot. And the support of family and friends was was unbelievable to help me tell me through that time. Yeah, I'll say this. I know you you work for the VA, so I don't want to say anything too controversial here. <laughs> yeah. uh, my experience with the VA has been the doctors, every doctor that I've gone to there for, you know, uh, behavioral health. Before I got out of the army, I didn't have my final dental thing. So like I had to do dentist at the VA, uh, just regular physical checkup. All the doctors have been phenomenal, right? The issue, I think, with the VA is there's this, there comes a point when an organization is so big, right? Like there's critical mass. And it's not like you can just shrink the VA either because there's, I mean, we have two wars going on right now. So you, they have to, you know, almost by creation get bigger and bigger to support all the veterans. So once you hit this critical mass, it becomes very difficult to manage all of those people and all of those services, right? So I don't, I don't think it's, it's not like individuals at the VA are bad. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a huge system. A huge complicated system, just like any huge complicated system, is bound to have, you know, hiccups in it. That's just the way it is. But the folks at the VA have been phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think since I've come on, um, and uh, to be a little bit more specific, I've seen concentrated efforts to do process improvement, process management. So I think they realize exactly what you're saying there is that it's not, it's not a people thing. It's a, it's a process thing. Right. We are making this too difficult for people to access the care that they need. Um, so that's what's encouraging to me, how quickly that gets rolled out and how quickly that, that gets to the user, you know, the veteran that needs it. Well, time will tell, but, you know, it, it was encouraging to see that. That's good to hear. Yeah, because it was, it, it was, I was taking a little bit of a leap of faith because I'd been with the photo oh, yeah. camera before. And uh, I was like, man, do we, is, this, is this just how it, is this, is it, it's just a sinkhole of bureaucracy. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what about what it seems like. Yeah, sometimes. Your secretary of the VA came to Pittsburgh a few months ago. Yeah. Like, seems like a good guy. Secretary McDonald. Um, things are getting better. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't uh, think it was um, like General Shinseki who was there before. Right. Like he got canned. Right. But that's sort of a straw man. Like I, those problems existed long, long before Shinseki was there. It's like, I don't know if just firing one guy makes a terrible difference. But like you're saying, systemically going through like, all right. Where exactly can we make improvements? Like that's that's the right answer. Yeah, I that's agree. very cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, every day more guys are getting out using those services. Yeah, I think you know we owe it to them. All right, our guest today has been Ryan All. <laughs> <laughs> sure, has. I was trying to think. I was trying to think if there was something else that I wanted to ask. I couldn't remember it. All right, all right, all right. All right. Our guest today has been Ryan All. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we enjoyed having you here. Ryan, thanks for coming on today. Enjoyed having you. Hey, man, it's been a real pleasure for sure. And I appreciate everything you guys do. And uh, I want to thank you for having me on. It's been, been great. All right, thanks, man. Get back to work. <laughs> I got to go. I got veterans to help. Thanks for joining us on Longest War, the podcast of BBC's post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project. To learn more about our project and the Veterans Breakfast Club, sign up for our newsletter, and to get a schedule of storytelling events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. And be sure to join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Nick Grimes. See you next time. 
The Longest War Podcast is a member of the Social Voice Podcast Network, a nonprofit project of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative.